Welcome to Tax Justice Warriors, the podcast that celebrates the work of low-income taxpayer clinics, focuses on tax controversy work, and looks at related issues in tax news. I'm your host, William Schmidt. All right, so welcome to this episode of Tax Justice Warriors. Once again, we have William Schmidt and Andrew Belter. And this episode, we're joined by John Gilmore, who is the head of research of Abine Delete Me. And could you talk a little bit about that and what is ID.me? Sure. Well, where I'm coming from is we're a, a data privacy company. We provide privacy services to consumers and businesses. And as such, we get involved with a lot of different aspects of who is collecting data, how are they using it, what are the regulations, can it be removed, can it be deleted, et cetera, et cetera. And so when the ID.me topic popped off, I mean, it first came on my radar last summer when it was sort of first disclosed that it was coming. I knew that it was going to be a controversy six months later. One, because nobody cares until the last minute, and that it it was going to introduce degrees of complexity that people were not going to be prepared for. And it raises a lot of issues relevant to the subject matter that I'm we sort of specialize in, which is why are we asked to submit so much information in every sort of transaction we engage in in life? And what are the rules around how that data is retained, shared, used, et cetera? I know that in regards to the the way I would frame why, not just what is IDME, but why is IDME, I think you need to sort of take look 10 years back and look at what are the problems that, that someone like IDME is trying to solve. And the, the problem they're trying to solve is 10 years ago, less than half of people uh, did their taxes online. Now 90% do. So you've seen this huge switch Almost everybody is doing their taxes online. What does that mean? It means one, they don't process paper anymore. Two, if you wanted to submit fraudulent applications, your life is actually a lot easier than it used to be. That in the past, you would have had to actually, you know, manually put together all of these things and then people would manually review them. And now um, the ability to conduct fraud is simpler. And the, the dynamic there has been sort of changing year after year, which is like around 2012, the, the feds got a little bit more serious about creating new processes to filter out potentially fraudulent applications to reduce wastage and loss. And, you know, the way the government works is it takes them three times longer to do anything than you know, by the time they've come up with a solution, the problem has changed. And that's sort of the story behind their problem with identity identity authentication, which is they're always about five years behind the curve. And between say 2012 and 2017, they were mainly using what is called knowledge-based verification, which is you, the taxpayer, or you, the benefits recipient, you submit your application and then they would pop a few questions, say, can you confirm the date of your last? They, they would just cross-reference this application with some other piece of information. And 
if the, you could cross-reference those things, that, that would verify that the person making the application is legit. And one of the problems with that approach is you, you suddenly need to provide all of this authenticatable information, knowledge about the applicant to lots of people. You need to apply it to every agent who is sitting at a terminal responding to that applicant. You're actually making data less secure because you're providing, you, you need to know their, like when did they make their last car payment or uh, you know, what is their daughter's graduation, you know, graduate from high school, any piece of information. Suddenly you're consolidating more personal information and sharing it with more people in order to affect, you know, an authentication process. In 2019, the GAO released a report saying everyone needs to stop this. It's terrible. Um, there was a general report for all federal agencies saying if you're using knowledge-based verification, you need to stop and you need to build better processes right now. And because the proliferation of all of this information, it used to be, it was hard to get lots of data about a person to then impersonate them. It's trivial now that, that there is so much personal information about people just floating around the net that's been breached from, the one that the GAO cited was the Equifax breach. They said after the Equifax breach, there was so much information about people just floating out in the public sphere that that, that process is effectively useless. Um, it's more than that. I mean, they might cite that this breach or that breach, but the reality is it's really just the aggregation of information from thousands of sources that it's so trivial to connect the dots of people's personal information that that, that process is effectively obsolete. And so what happened after that is, what probably would have happened after that is it would have taken them five more years to come up with some standard that everyone in every federal agency uses. Unfortunately, the pandemic happened and that forced millions and millions of people to work remotely and to now conduct almost all of their government service businesses remotely online. And so you couldn't suddenly make everything harder for people at a time when more everyone is totally reliant on benefits access from websites. And so what everyone started scrambling for were quick fixes. And the reason we have IDME, the reason this problem exists is because the problem suddenly became urgent. It was exacerbated by in 2020, not just by the fact that everyone is remote and everyone the need for access is so huge, but that fraud exploded, particularly benefits fraud, whether it was COVID stimulus payments, you pick anything, whether it was unemployment insurance, whether it was Medicare benefits, you name it, whether it was identity theft, you name it, every single one of those things grew between like 20 and 40% in a single year. In some cases, it doubled, like identity theft instances doubled between 19, 2019 and 2020. Um, so everybody in the, in, whether you're an unemployment agency, and this is worth mentioning because that's where IDME started. Their, their first sort of, they first got themselves credibility by going to state unemployment agencies and providing, we will improve your fraud problem. Unemployment agencies lost, I think they said, the GAO or the F, they said about 100 billion, but IDME 
would go to the press and say they lost 400 billion to in fraud in 2020. The number, regardless of which one you pick, was very, very big. So there is a real problem. The, the problem with fraud is real. And so you can't sort of just dismiss the solutions as, well, they're, they're non-solution. No, there's a very, very real problem of fraud. However, do you want quick fix solutions to this enormous problem? Probably not. What makes ID me different from the competitors in the space, which are people like LexisNexis, TransUnion, Experian, they all offer sort of third-party identity verification services. But IDME is different. They're new. And the thing that they offer is one additional layer of information, which is they offer the, the facial recognition component, which is you submit your, your application, your documents to them, and then they verify that these documents belong to you by getting you to provide a selfie video rather than a photograph to validate it. And it's just one additional hurdle. Everyone focuses on the video thing, the facial recognition thing, as though that's the big problem. In my opinion, it's not. In my opinion, the big problem is the one of the largest federal agencies in America forcing everyone in America to conduct, share all of their information with a third party that literally didn't exist like 10 years. I mean, this company was never, only started doing this type of thing four years ago, that their processes have no oversight, how they use the data that you give them. There are no laws governing what this third party can do with information you give them. There's no consistent federal data privacy regulation. That that's the problem from my point of view is that we're getting a third party involved in, a, in one of the most important processes in human life, which is paying your taxes. And they have an incredible amount of power they're going to, they will become, if this, if this stays, if they stay this sort of vendor of choice for IRS, I would believe that they would become the federal standard within a couple of years, that every agency will essentially shape themselves around this one solution. And I think without regulations and without sort of oversight and transparency of this company, that we should not be involving this third party to be the gatekeeper of government services. But that's my point of view. And, you know, um, so let's, we can just discuss it from there. No, that was good. You, you answered, what is it? The, the problems, facial recognition, then how it's with a third party. Also the government has it. And I know I'm actually a little concerned myself. I didn't, upgrade the, my account because I didn't want to share any information, but I liked what you said. I think, you know, the things that the media have latched onto are real issues, which is um, if the if the key point of the, if the key thing that makes these guys better than traditional knowledge based authentication is simply video matching a video with your your documents that one, I think everything that you raised is completely valid, which is one, not everyone has video cameras at, at disposal. Large swaths of the population will not have easy access to generating an immediate video of themselves. Two, there are proven problems with the quality of image recognition and verification 
from people of different minority groups. And then I think the third one is the, the question of what do they do with it? What do, when they receive facial recognition verification? Well, they do, the, the, one of the problems is they lied about it. When they were first sort of announced, they said, we really only do verification, which is one-to-one. -one. We take the images you give us and we compare them to each other. We just make sure that they're all the same person and that's all we do. But then they had to walk that back two weeks ago and they said, actually, no, we do submit those images to Amazon's recognition platform, which compares all of those images to millions and millions and millions of others to look for whether it's a deep fake or whether it's a fraud, whether it's associated with a different identity. And, you know, that, that, some people think that's the big problem that we're sharing lots of images. I, I tend to not worry so much about that. What I worry about is that there are, is the issue of zero laws around how this information is used. So last week, the IRS said they were transitioning away from ID.me. Yeah, they said over the coming weeks that they didn't want to disrupt taxpayers during filing season but that they were going to bring online an additional authentication process that does not involve facial recognition. But what, what are your thoughts in, in that transition? Well, I, my thoughts are that what they're saying is we're, we're gonna just take the part that nobody likes, which is just the video part, and we're gonna do everything we do anyway we're going to do things the way the experience, the Lexus Nexuses do things, which we're going to compare these docs to one another. And if necessary, if we believe it's a fraudulent thing, we will force you to go through a, a verification that will, you'll have to phone your phone in and deal with an agent and say, answer these five questions that they're saying, we'll go back to the old fashioned way of doing things because they want this to blow over and they want their relationships with the 10 government agencies they currently serve to not change. What I would have, if, if IRS had announced we're not going to use ID.me at all, I would have been impressed. What they're saying is, well, we're just going to modify the process for the next six months and we'll phase this thing in because we still want this quick fix solution to our pressing problems. And they are the one that everyone prefers, apparently. I don't know, like if the, their core benefit here's the thing if their core what makes them different and what makes them more attractive is the ability to do the id verification the image verification thing if you take that away they don't have any competitive differentiation anymore you might as well use the lexus nexus system that you had been using the year prior it doesn't make any sense to me why this third party and their gatekeeper role needs to stay if they can't do the one but, you know, value added thing that they were claiming was necessary. There, there is, that's one of the, you know, one of the things that really bothers me about this company is how quickly they went from being kind of a nobody to being the number one choice. And I don't know if anyone really has a good answer to that. What it seems to be is that my guess is that it sounds the most secure that they and that they use in their marketing. They use a lot of we use AI. We have a lot of machine learning. We we involve you know we have video we we integrate video recognition. It all sounds very high tech. Whereas the old fashioned data broker guys like the Lexuses and the TransUnions, they're like database guys. They're like we compare 
something in column X to column Y. And, and everyone goes, ooh, that's, that's internet 1.0. Whereas IDMe is internet 3.0. These guys got machine learning and stuff. But as far as I can tell, it's all smoke and mirrors that fundamentally what they do is exactly the same. It's just connecting this to this. And um, while I don't like the experience and, and the trans unions, I don't like those guys very much because they're kind of the enemy of data privacy. At least they're credible. At least they, you know, they've been around and they've been doing this for 30 years. Whereas IDME, I, I, you don't have that degree of confidence that they one, that they really know what they're doing, and two, that they're trustworthy because they've been caught misrepresenting themselves at least, you know, more than once. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought one of the big things for going to ID me was that they're requiring at biometrics now for uh, biometrics privacy. is yeah, biometrics oh. is just a umbrella term to describe you know, any sort of characteristics unique to a, hu a, a human being. And facial recognition is one kind of biometric. So facial recognition is the primary biometric. Fingerprints are another form of biometric. Voice printing is another form of biometric. And you could use any of these and, you know, many different sort of, um, many sort of identity authentication processes are trying to include biometrics in their processes. The problem is making them consistent. And the image thing, I think, is, was, is seen as the lowest common denominator because everyone has a camera on their cell phone, or most people have a camera. That's, so they see that as this is the, the most accessible form of biometric authentication because fingerprint, transmitting fingerprint data is not as easy as, or, or collecting it accurately and transmitting it is a bit more technologically complex than simply sending a selfie. So it's probably the next step of that we're all just going to have to use some sort of biometric. I, I believe that's true. I mean, there, there, there are a bunch of consortiums, probably the most powerful force in changing the rules around how we do authentication is the financial services industry. They, and I'm going to start rambling again, so fair warning. They are the ones who think about this stuff the most because they're the ones with who handle transactions, payments. And so they want to cut fraud off at the source. And they're probably the most sophisticated thinkers about this stuff. They know that the password is a dead technology. They know that passwords are terrible. So, and they're the ones that probably were the first to say, hey, everybody, we need to create two-factor authentication. Two-factor authentication was simply a recognition that passwords sucked, that everyone agreed passwords were just a complete disaster and they enable tons and tons of fraud because it's trivial to get an email address, find a password that email address uses, and suddenly you can access any accounts belonging to that individual. You don't even need their name or the phone number, or their address, usually just email and password will get you through the door anywhere. And so two-factor authentication was came into vogue because it will simply make the password usable again, because you first you enter the password and then it will be linked to a unique device. And that device, you've confirmed that this device belongs to you, the email address holder. Therefore, it's just a, an additional layer that ensures that 
it's the person you know we want it to be it's not good either and like to quote hank paulson after the financial crisis when he said things are better better is not good you know the two-factor authentication is better but it's still prone to all kinds of exploits it makes access to accounts and here's like the other issue which is that anytime you make authentication more secure you actually increase complexity for the customer and so people in the financial services world they're like we want everything to be one click we would rather everything be one click we want to make processes simpler having to enter your information wait for a text message click on a link and then hope that that the message via sms gets through all of those systems and then confirms that it takes more time and involves more clicks nobody likes that everybody wants it to be simpler and so the financial services industry has they they are belong to all of these technology consortiums that are pushing very very strongly to create new identity standards and they will almost all of the proposals involve biometrics or linking biometrics in some way that will that think about it this way they want to create sort of a national identity code you think it's like a string of numbers that is you um, but you can't copy it and it can't be stolen it can only be linked to you that's what they want to, and it's it's like a national id that's what they want to create and they want to have it linked to your biometrics and they want to have it encrypted so it's got to have all of these different standards they know that that's the solution that or at least they believe that's the solution the direction everything it should be going in however we're not there yet and so id me and this take a selfie confirm with a third party thing is really just a stopgap but that that's where people want to go they want to create a fingerprint a digital fingerprint that when you go to a website or you engage in a transaction anywhere anywhere whether it's government whether it's a commercial organization you can just press a little button and it, it proves who you are that's what they want to do um and it's a really interesting topic um but we're not there yet and they know that it's going to be politically fraught nobody likes national ids or i mean it's really about like this story here is really about how the death of the social security number if you think about it like what are why why are we talking about id me it's because social security numbers have been so insecure for so long that that you can get databases of millions of them for 10 bucks on you know you could go on the dark web and buy databases of millions and millions of people with their social um, and they're breached every day. Every day, there is a news story of some company that's lost X million or Y million. And it's just a constant process. And so the social security number, which used to be that thing, that sort of unique to every person, string of numbers that was relatively secure because it was hard to remember, um, it's, it's finally dead. And the government has not yet figured out a solution for the death of the social security number. So I'll, I'll give you some different statistics and some of my questions coming up, but like, so yeah, I guess, I guess the IRS is trying to make it out like, like it's good that they're transitioning away from ID.me, but ID.me is being used by 27 states for their unemployment benefits systems, 30 states and 10 federal agencies use them for other government services. So like the California DMV, and then yep. the Veterans Affairs Administration and Social Security Administration both use facial recognition also. So like, 
it, it sounds like it's it's pretty entrenched in in some state and, and federal systems, whether the IRS uses it or not. So that's right. That's right. It's as I said earlier, my concern is regardless of whether they make their make everyone go through the selfie issue this year or not. That doesn't bother me so much. What bothers me is that this company is quickly becoming the default solution to a big problem. And I don't think it should be. And again, look, the way I framed it is that GAO raised this issue of identity verification in 2019. And it's very likely that government would have, they started, you know, they have their login.gov platform, which is supposed to provide sort of a one-stop shop for verification to access all of the different government services. If left to their own devices, if things had been normal, it's very likely that that would have evolved and improved over years and would have, that they would have developed their own in-house processes for identity authentication across all federal agencies. The reason, and that I, the, my concern is the reason they suddenly said, you know what, we can't do it ourselves. We just want to dump it on a third-party provider. That that it's an admission of failure. It's an admission that they need a solution because they don't want to the kind of chaos of what happened in 2020, which is 100, 100 billion in unemployment benefits lost, double-digit percentage of Medicare fraud, 30, 40% growth in most of these fraud categories. They don't want to see that year after year. And so they want, they're like scrambling to provide a solution. And it doesn't bother me so much that, you know, if the VA, if the Veteran Administration wants to use something like ID.me, fine, that's fine. If, if a couple of agencies want to use it, it doesn't bother me. What The role I think that IRS plays is that if they use it, it's never going away. Because IRS is someone that, you, if you, only veterans have to deal with the VA, only certain segments of the population have to deal with the Department of Labor or the, you know, most people have, may, may have to deal with the Social Services Administration, but everybody has to deal with the IRS. And IRS, for me, gives them, pushes them over from being a nice to have that some agencies can use. It will make them the default and make them the standard. And once you've become the, the standard, you will be very hard to you will it will entrench them as the gatekeeper for identity verification for everyone in America for the for the foreseeable future. And I don't think they've demonstrated that they are true. And I the, the 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 problem I have is not them as a company. I don't even know enough about them as a company to critique them properly. And I think that's one problem is that there's no transparency. The problem that I have is that I see government trying to find a quick fix to a systemic problem that needs years of work, it needs transparency, and it needs oversight. And just dumping it all on this third party, no matter who it is, to me, is the questionable thing. There was a story, I don't know if you saw it, it was just a couple of days ago, I guess three days ago, and it was in the Washington Post, about related to their unemployment, the, how effective they are in reducing unemployment uh, benefits fraud. But the story in the Washington Post was about how a guy in New Jersey with a wig successfully was authenticated for 
I think he was, it was about a million dollars in benefits. He, but he faked, he faked 28. It was, I don't remember the numbers. It was like 20 or more fake applications where he made fake driver's license and he had nothing except a wig and a fake beard, but that he breached their, their verification process because it matched his fake wig and beard matched the fake wig and beard on the ID. And so he was successful in, he received about a million dollars in payout. So it's not clear to me that even though they have this additional layer of technology, that it's any better in practice than the old fashioned confirm, you know, confirm these other three pieces of information, you know, that it, it, I don't think there's any data on is facial verification more accurate than knowledge-based verification, that, that there is, it doesn't have a track record showing like years and years that, oh, this, this filters out 30% or that if, if knowledge-based verification results in 15% of fraudulent success, we only have five that we don't have any data to actually validate whether their process is any more secure. This might be an unfair question, but where do you, where would you want the IRS to go as far as safety or privacy? And oh, in an ideal security? world? Well, thank you for asking. Um, one, open source, that the technology and the processes for creating a sort of secure digital identity should be an open source project it should be in public encryption, meaning it's it very, like many things that are like are that is hip. It probably involves crypto. That it probably involves, you know what I mean. That it, it would that you use a distributed sort of encryption technology to ensure the security of your digital identifier, um, and that it would be universal. That it would be everyone would recognize it as the standard. Um, what I would want about it. Here's the thing, here's the other thing about processes that drives me insane. Um, I would really like it if we all had our, our little digital identifier that was not connected to any other information about the person. Um, I'm trying to remember, there's like a technical term they use for it, but the, the point would be is that like a biometric, that it's, it's like a fingerprint, but you don't, it's not like, it's always being used in concert with your name, your address, your phone number, your social security number, your location data, that it's not contained in databases along with all this other stuff. That That's like one of the problems is that every time you create a new authenticator or a new piece of information, it's just added to the pile of existing information that is always being processed. And I would prefer that. I would prefer a, a national, like a, we have a, a standards body with an open source process that comes up with some secure digital identifier. And so that's one thing. Two, I would like federal regulation of federal data privacy regulation that's similar to the GDPR uh, that regulates how businesses are allowed to use personal information and that you can it can be deleted by third parties on request. I would want all of that because if you're gonna create a national identifier, if you're gonna create a skeleton key for identity, you need to also have some, with the, some protections on identity abuse. And I feel without sort of federal data privacy regulation, there is no one set of rules for everyone to follow. And at the moment, you've got you know, a handful of states with data privacy regulations that are not consistent with one another. And, and as far as I can tell, the compliance with these things is kind of scattershot. Like 
unless you do business in California, you don't have to comply with CCPA. Um, so those are, the, those are the two things that I think are necessary. One, federal data privacy regulation, and two, that if we create some sort of secure digital identifier for us that would be used across all government services, that it would have to be developed in a transparent process. It would have to, that, that it, everything would need to be reviewable uh, and that it be universal. That's what the thing about IDME is it's just one, it's just yet one of a, an additional process on top of an old process, which is add selfies to the pile. Um, and I don't like the idea of this one private company collecting all of this data on millions and millions of people and having no restrictions on what really they can do with it. They may have an agreement with the IRS that says it's section, what is it called? Section, you guys might know better than me section 6103 or something it's it, i believe it's the it's the rules about anybody who processes data for the irs it's the rule it, the rules that they have to follow you know they i id me has those agreements with the irs about how what they're allowed to do with customer information but they don't have that agreement with the user they can gather that id me is still free to gather any additional information they they want from those those customers and then sell it or or reuse it for any other purposes they see fit. And so that's, that's the thing that, uh, I, don't think they, I don't think they should exist as a gatekeeper for government services. And if, you know, anyway. So I'm, I'm going to turn it to our kind of client base and um, just start out by saying, talking about the error rates for people of color that I, I know there there were more statistics and I couldn't find one of them of like the the hundreds of percents or, or whatever, but like one one thing I saw was that the error rates are, are just 1% for white men, but almost 35% for dark-skinned women. So just in general, that that people of color have have been having a tougher time with facial recognition. So my my knowledge of this is kind of is mixed, but it's it's probably better than the average person. I would say this, I think the complaints are real, meaning that the accuracy of facial recognition for uh, minorities is not as good as it is for Caucasian people. At the same time, I think that's true. I think there is truth behind that. I think there is also truth behind the people who develop these technologies say, one, most of those arguments are based on technology from three or four years ago that we've got a lot better and that the problem will be gone within a certain amount of time. That if they say, look, it, it, it's, it may be true for recognition, but not for verification, that they may draw the distinction and say, it is true for facial recognition when you're starting from a blank slate and all you have is an image of a person, can you identify them? positively identify them. That's where the high error rate is. However, if you provide two pictures, one of a person who they claim to be, and one of a selfie that they just took, so like a government document versus a selfie, that the differences are not as significant. So I think, you know, the, the response from the technology people will be, look, you're mixing apples and oranges here. We're very good at verification. Recognition, there is still a high error rate. None of that to me, I don't really worry about that. From my perspective, the reason this issue is raised is because it's the kind of thing media really likes. It's the criticism that they praise, which is world to end tomorrow, women and you know, minorities and women are hurt worst. 
that that's the story, that the story from their point of view is that this is an anti-minority problem. I understand their motivation in doing that because it gets the story out there and it, it ensures that a lot of people will pay attention to it. My, you know, as I've sort of repeated ad nauseum here, I'm worried more about the sort of structural government problem here, not the sort of selfies are not accurate thing. But, but I do believe it's true. I mean, I do believe it's true, but I would just qualify and say that it, it's probably less true for verification, more true for recognition aspects. I think the, the, what, the other issue that is raised that is probably more valid, in my opinion, than the, the racial thing is the access issue that it requires people to be able to take videos of themselves on demand. And to me, that is, that is an unfairly, a sudden new burden. Every taxpayer, where in, in, the, in the past, all you needed was your information. You need your name, your social security number, and information about yourself. Now you need like a handheld video camera to pay your taxes, that, that you're suddenly you're creating this new requirement for millions and millions of people that even if people have them, like my grand, my mother doesn't know how to, you know what I mean? It's even if you have the technology, your ability to, to use it correctly to the satisfaction of ID me may not exist. Maybe your language skills are not very good. You know, maybe, you know, are the instructions in your language, you know what I mean? It's just, to me, it creates an access problem. And I think that's far more significant. Well, yeah, thank you. I, that was almost my last question of right. um, that the IRS has been trying to improve technology and trying saying they're reaching everyone, but yet they don't always think of the, the low income individual or the English as a second language or, or whichever kind of group that, that is not the tech savvy group that so, so yes, def definitely thank you for, for addressing that because that, that is one thing that, that our, uh, us as advocates that, that we are often trying to, to reach the IRS with that of like, hey, just because you're moving along with technology doesn't mean you're reaching everyone. Absolutely. You know, and I, I was listening to another podcast just a couple of days ago where they were talking about new IRS changes at the IRS in the last six months, one of which is their increased surveillance of digital currency transactions, things like PayPal, Venmo, mobile apps, payments apps, and that they're tracking any as much as if you breach this, was it $600 a year in transactions on these platforms that they, you'll be subject to IRS review. And the comment made by these people was, IRS claims that their mandate is to prevent fraud you know, by high net worth individuals, that that is where their effort, yet they're spending millions and millions and millions of dollars collecting data on these peanuts that is mostly people who are like unbanked, you know what I mean? That, that, that people who rely on platforms like mobile payment apps, uh, uh, digital gift cards, things like that, those are like the poorest people in America with the and yet that's where they're focusing. Like that's where they're increasing their enforcement effort is on, you know, if, if they had evidence, they say, well, it turns out like drug dealers are, are all using PayPal, which is, they're not. 
But if there were, if there were like a real problem, and Iris said, this is a very effective way, that we're, this is going to be great bang for buck for us in improving enforcement, I would buy it. But they're not, they're, they didn't sell this, uh, this new surveillance of small transactions. They didn't sell it as like, it's going to be a great thing for Americans. They, they're basically doing it because we can. They're doing it that it, it doesn't seem to have any rationale from like, why is IRS suddenly interested in, in small digital payments? They're doing it simply because the technology exists and they have the legal power, the right to oversee these things. That's why they're doing it. They're not doing it because there's, there's no, as far as I know, there is no huge like tax evasion problem via PayPal. It's people selling stuff on eBay. You know what I mean? And if like, are eBay transactions really where the IRS like, is that the big fish of where tax fraud is? It, I, I don't think so. And it, I think it's, it's, a, it's a scandal that they're going after the, the small taxpayer at a time when, you know, that's not where the source of fraud is. And yet, you know, that's where they're increasing the complexity uh, for the small taxpayer. Well, those, those are the questions I had for you. So anything else to add, Andrew? No, he answered everything I was curious about. And provide some great information. Yeah, I'm good at ranting. I, I probably, I haven't done many podcasts, but I, I am kind of a talker. In my previous life, we, I had to do public speaking all the time. So it's kind of a normal thing. But thanks, guys. I appreciate your time. And I appreciate you know, your, your attention to this issue. Because I, I do think it, as I said at the very beginning, I do think it's not going away. That I, I do think the government is going to keep these guys around and that they're going to try to sell it they're going to improve their public image, but I, I would rather they went away completely and that we had more people advocating for a simple, transparent process for, for identity verification rather than rely on a third party. Well, thank you, John. I, I appreciate your time and all of the information. So, so thank you for, for speaking with us. All right, guys. Well, thank you. Thank you, John. Goodwin. Thank you for listening to Tax Justice Warriors. We have a Patreon page if you'd like to support this podcast. Providing monetary support for this podcast helps with expenses like equipment or travel to tax conferences. Supporting this podcast through Patreon comes with rewards, so check out our Patreon page. Please rate or review this podcast because positive reviews help get more people to know this podcast exists. The views expressed on this podcast are not official opinions of the IRS, the Low Income Taxpayer Clinic Program, or the employers of the people who spoke on this program. Your tax situation is unique. So do not take the statements on this program as tax or legal advice. Consult with your own tax professional to provide you with specific advice on your situation. Tune in next time on Tax Justice Warriors for another interesting tax discussion.